This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 199. We are one off 200, which is crazy to me. I'm sure it doesn't mean an awful lot to you guys, but 200 is just huge. And I was looking back at how many solo shows I've done versus interviews and It means that I've actually had 190 incredible conversations with the best and brightest minds in their fields and been able to bring that to you. So thank you for listening. Thank you for leaving reviews. Thank you for sharing shows that really spoke to you and you felt were really useful uh, to others perhaps on your social media with your following and clients and friends. Uh, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate all of that and you, of course, for being here. So here's to the next 200. Uh, We're certainly not short of incredibly fascinating people doing amazing work in this world. And so this podcast ain't going anywhere anytime soon. Now, if you want to be an active supporter of the podcast and get a whole bunch of goodies in return, please do consider coming to join us on the Lotox Club. You can hit the explore tab on lotoxlife.com and it is the very first option that comes up under there. Join the club. Uh, And by the way, guys, it's only $49 per year. And that for an American, I think, is about 30 US. For a European, it's about 28 euro. So it's incredibly good value. Uh, you get, of course, a private membership group on Facebook. And the beauty of having that small paywall there means we don't have trolls or people being mean to each other. It is just a genuinely supportive group of like minds growing by the week uh, who are there to support each other with what they know. Uh, I'm in there supporting you guys. And we have exclusive interviews. We had a fantastic interview a couple of weeks ago with a building biologist talking all about aircon, condensation, the best types of windows to uh, choose, shutters, frames, Uh, servicing of air conditioning, electricity. We talked about so much stuff and that was exclusive to the clubbers. So we do those as kind of Q&As every few weeks on topics that have been coming up over and over again in the club. I find an export, I gather the uh, expert, I gather the questions and we go for it. Uh, And of course you get 50% off all of the Lotox Life uh, programs uh, and uh, what else? And of course the club dashboard. So every month a new club dashboard button comes up for that month. August is all about the immune system and people are loving the information that we've collected and put together. Things like, you know, key deficiencies to get checked up on, do a round of bloods, uh, because if you're deficient in these, they're they're the ones that you want to build up to get your immune function happening properly. And uh, recipes, herbs, all sorts of forms of support, a really uh, cool few biohacks that you can do uh, and some uh, challenges that we're doing around that in the club. So come join us. Uh, I really love that space there. It's very supportive. And, uh, And thank you to all of our club members for being there. 
So uh, who have I got on the show today? I have Dr. Dale Bredesen. And for those of you who didn't catch my show last year with Dale, you are in for a treat. And you don't have to have listened to the first show we did together to necessarily understand what we're talking about today. It's still very, very much easy to understand, but it will complete the picture for you if you go back and listen to the other one as well. So that's just a word of wisdom to head back into the archives and check that one out. Uh, But I've got Dale on the show to talk about further progress that him and his colleagues have made in the ending of Alzheimer's uh, and the catching of it early where it can be reversed well before the time where one gets a diagnosis. Um, but And of course, his first book, The End of Alzheimer's, was incredible. It was one of my favourite books that I read that year. It came out in 2017. Uh, but now he has created The End of Alzheimer's program. And that is literally coming out this week. So you can grab it online. Uh, And uh, if you're over in the US, you can get it from a local independent bookstore. That's always the best way to go rather than just backing the big guys. And um, I'm sure that will trickle out throughout the world as well. Uh, But it is a fantastic program. It really helps bring to life some of the principles that have been floating to the top in Dale and his colleagues' research over the past few years. And uh, we're really starting to see uh, some incredible results that Dale shares with us on today's show. So I I mean, such a gift to be able to have Dale on the show and discuss these things, discuss the work he's doing. He's an internationally recognised doctor as an expert in the mechanism of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease. And uh, he has held faculty positions at UCSF, UCLA, University of California, San Diego, uh, and directed the program on aging at the Burnham Institute uh, before coming to the Buck Institute in 1998 as its founding president and CEO. He is currently also a professor at UCLA. So he's got a few brain cells functioning quite highly, and it is a gift to have him here with us today. So before I hook into that interview, I just want to remind you that the Natural Bedding Company is our supporter this month, and you have 10% off latex mattresses and pillows, Aussies. So use your code LOWTOXNBC and head to their website, The Natural Bedding Company, dot com dot au and make the most of this beautiful local passionate brand using the most environmentally and ethically sound natural healthy materials that they can find to produce everything from their gorgeous latex mattresses and pillows but also bed linen wool pillows wool quilts it is not a teeny tiny range there's a lot to explore on the website and 10% off a mattress is kind of a big deal on those bigger ticket items that tend to cost a fair bit more so make the most of that in the month of August and make the most of this show and what Dr. Dale Bredesen shares with us today enjoy hello Dale how are you I'm doing great. How are you, Alex? I am very well. I am very excited to have you back on the show. It is uh, a privilege and an honour given you and your colleagues are really at the forefront of this beautiful window of opportunity that appears to be opening up for us when it comes to one of our biggest chronic disease challenges, Alzheimer's disease. So we very much appreciate your work. Thanks very much. Uh, it's, uh, it's great to be back. And I think these are such exciting times because certainly when I trained years ago, 
uh, and with the, for the 30 years in the lab, we were always taught the same thing, that there is nothing that can be done to prevent, reverse, or delay Alzheimer's disease. And what we're seeing now is that that is simply wrong, as we're now understanding more about the pathophysiology and understanding about, as you mentioned, the window of opportunity. The reality is that we can all work together to make Alzheimer's a rare disease, which is exactly what it should be instead of what it currently is. And in the United States, it's been reported by Professor Christine Yaffe and her colleagues that it's now the third leading cause of death in the U.S. And if you look at the U.S. population, about 45 million of us are slated to get it during our lifetimes if we don't do something. So it's about 15% of the population if we don't do something about it. So this is the time to reduce the global burden of dementia. There's no question about it. Huge. And I don't doubt that the um, research and figures and percentages look very similar here in Australia uh, as they do in the UK. It tends to be all the Anglo-Saxon hyper-progressive countries <laughs> that unfortunately have regressed when it comes to human health. Um, so the first time we spoke, we looked at potential environmental and genetic implications in Alzheimer's disease. And I definitely urge everybody to head back to show 143 to take a listen. Uh, what is new in the world? We spoke, I think it was about 16, 17 months ago now. So update us. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's actually a lot new that's going on. And for, first, I would just say that, you know, we've all been learning from COVID-19 that comorbidities, that walking around with hypertension, walking around with obesity, with type 2 diabetes, uh, with hypercoagulable states, with a chronic inflammation, the very things that have predisposed us to chronic illnesses such as Alzheimer's over decades has been compressed down to two weeks with COVID-19. So getting a poor outcome for COVID-19, very similar comorbidities to getting a poor outcome with your cognition, in fact. One of the things that's come up uh, with along these lines is that in both COVID-19 uh, and in Alzheimer's, um, you are seeing an activation of the innate immune system without a successful response by the adaptive system. So you get these cytokine storms that are killing people. You know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but what, what you look at with what's actually happening with COVID-19 to countries, including Australia, including the U.S., you mentioned the U.K. And, and others, what you're seeing is a downsizing. There is a contraction of the economy. There's a contraction of the workforce. There's a contraction of the interactions, all in the name of protection. That is exactly what Alzheimer's disease is. Your brain is literally doing what our country is doing during COVID-19. It's saying, I am being insulted, and the insults we can talk about, and they are toxins, and they are pathogens, and they are insulin resistance, and so forth and so on. And your brain is responding by saying, I'm going to make things like amyloid beta and others to fight these insults. And in so doing, I'm literally pulling in. I am downsizing. So very much like what's going on in our societies with COVID-19. You can see the downside and you can see why it's necessary. You are fighting an ongoing pathogen in that case. Uh, and of course, it, with Alzheimer's, it can be many things. It can be pathogens, toxins, et cetera. So a number of things, as we've kind of crowdsourced, we've been able to see now there are over 5,000 people 
that are on the protocol that we developed and first published back in 2014 with the first examples of reversal of cognitive decline. And now we've had over 1,500 physicians trained uh, in uh, 10 different countries and all over the U.S., including uh, a number of outstanding physicians uh, in Australia. Um, and then we've also seen uh, people in other countries looking at the various things that are coming through. And one of the things that's come up that we didn't know at the beginning was how important oxygen saturation is while you are sleeping. Of course, everyone knows about sleep apnea. That's, that's obvious. Um, but many people would say, well, you know, I don't snore or I don't think I have sleep apnea. Well, it turns out to be incredibly important. And there's some interesting research that literally shows that if you look at the mean oxygen saturation while you're sleeping, that correlates directly with volumetrics of specific brain regions, including regions critical for Alzheimer's disease. So there is a direct correlation here. And we see all the time that people didn't realize that they had some degree of sleep apnea or that they had upper airway resistance syndrome or that they had other reasons for dropping their oxygen saturation at night. And they're getting it into the 80s and even into the low 70s we've seen. And so there are so many of these things that contribute to cognitive decline that are silent. You don't know about them if you don't check them. And of course, toxins, probably the largest of all of them. We see recent case, for example, turned out to have propylene oxide as a, as a major exposure. Uh, and uh, then others that have various mycotoxins as major exposures where you don't realize that you're living with these things. And that's why I urge everyone to get these things checked, to go in, get a, what we call a cognoscopy, get these things evaluated uh, and so that you'll know because otherwise, you know, they are continuing to damage you. You have a fairly long pre-symptomatic period, and then a, a mildly symptomatic period, SCI, subjective cognitive impairment, lasts on average a decade. So you actually have a lot of time to intervene, but people tend to ignore it. Ah, it's mild, or they don't even know it. We've had a number of people who came in for, quotes prevention, but when we actually test them, it turns out they've already started down the pathway. So thankfully, they, they came in. And so this really is, it's a seductive reaper, essentially. This is a thing that is, you know, people will say, oh, I'm just having a senior moment or two here. But no, you're, you're in earliest stages. And so this old idea, you know, so many things that, are, that have been backwards with standard of care, the old idea, oh, you know, it's probably not Alzheimer's, don't bother, you know, because if you go in there, it probably won't be Alzheimer's. Well, so what? So you went in and it wasn't Alzheimer's. Isn't that a good thing? And if you go in and it's the earliest stages of Alzheimer's, aren't you glad you found out? Well, again, in the past, oh, there's nothing you can do about it. Don't find out. That's absolutely wrong. What's interesting, and one of the things you mentioned, what's new? The armamentarium continues to grow. The armamentarium for cognitive decline is just the opposite of what we've been told. We've been told it's nothing, nothing you can do, take a drug, it doesn't work well. It's huge, and it encompasses everything from intravenous glutathione to uh, fasting uh, to specific supplements and drugs and hormones and trophic factors and stem cells and exercise with oxygen therapy, so-called EWOT. And again, each person is different. So you need to understand why each, what is driving each person's cognitive decline. You know, this is the difference between 21st century medicine and 20th century medicine. Unfortunately, 20th century medicine is still the standard of care, which is you wait for things to go wrong, you give a medicine, it doesn't work well. 
for chronic conditions. Yeah, if you've got pneumococcal pneumonia, you're going to be in good shape. But, uh, but if you've got chronic illnesses, which is what's killing the vast majority of us today, then in fact, the idea of just giving a drug late in the stages of this is absolutely wrong. You really need to strategize and you need to look deeply at what's going on with people because it's a little bit like, you know, you take your car in and the car is not working well and the, and the mechanic says, oh, Alex, we know what this is. This is called car not working syndrome. And you say, well, wait a minute, that's just a name. Well, that's what Alzheimer's is. Alzheimer's is car not working syndrome. It's a name that means nothing. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a name of Dr. Alzheimer who described it back in 1906. Great. Um, that's, pa- that's a pathology determinant but it doesn't tell you what's actually driving the process. And when you begin to look at it, as you know, um, we, we identified a number of different subtypes that you can see by looking at the biochemistry specific blood tests. So then now if you've got genomic data, you've got biochemical data, you've got functional data, and you can look at things like anything from uh, CNS vital signs, MOCA scores, COG state, all these different ways to look at cognition. You can also look at things like electrophysiology. So you can look at P300B, which is an evoked response. Um, You can look at uh, quantitative EEGs and look at dominant alpha rhythm and things like that. And with all these things, they give you an idea. How severe is this? And, and what is driving the process. And of course, people also use imaging, volumetrics, and in some cases, PET scans to look for amyloid and things like that. But you know, again, amyloid is, is really about protecting your brain. Mm, yes, I loved what you said there earlier, where it was like the, the picture of the brain kind of buckling down and trying to go down to the smallest requirements uh, to protect itself. That really shows us that we need to get to the bottom of why the brain is trying to protect itself in the first place. That's exactly right. And what our research showed over the years is that this is very much like other chronic illnesses, such as osteoporosis. You have an input. So, you know, you have the, all the things that are supportive, trophic factors, hormones, all this sort of stuff. And that leads to synaptoblastic signaling. In other words, making and keeping these synapses, literally making and keeping memories. But then you have a whole set of things that are on the synaptoclastic side that are downsizing. And this has to do with the demand you're placing on and it has to do with the ongoing inflammation. Again, no different than taking your whole country and saying, you know, are are we on good times? We're going to grow we're going to make new bridges, we're going to make new allies, and so forth and so on. Or, no, we're in the middle of a war, we're not building anything new except war-related, we're protecting ourselves. Two very different things, two very different signaling events. And so what we're doing with all these people is identifying those, because at the end of the day, Alzheimer's is synaptoporosis. You're downsizing, you're removing these synapses. And so what we want to do is increase the synaptoblastic signaling. And that does have to do with the oxygenation getting to your brain. And it does have to do with the blood flow. And it does have to do with whether there are toxins around or you've got the right hormones and on and on versus the synaptoclastic signaling. We want to drive the synaptoclastic signaling down, the synaptoblastic signaling up. And no surprise, when we do that, people improve. And in fact, their volumetrics improve. We're just actually writing up a wonderful woman who 
whose uh, PET scans improved, her, her MRI improved, her scoring improved. Uh, and most importantly of all, when these people improve, because you've gotten to the root cause of this, they stay improved. So the longest ones now, we started this in 2012. So the longest ones now are over eight years since they started, and they have sustained their improvement, which has been unheard of, as you know. How fantastic. And so really the goal is to get people out of wartime thinking into growth and prosperity. Um, exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. So um, you mentioned a whole bunch of tests there, a whole bunch of therapy potentials that work for different people um, and getting to the bottom of their um, genetics and other biomarkers. And I love that. And I love the fact that this is possible. But I just want to acknowledge the fact that often this happens on someone's own dime. This is very rarely covered by insurances because it's progressive treatments. It's considered experimental uh, and integrative. And, and it kind of makes me think this, this, the chance now to get better from a chronic disease like Alzheimer's, uh, is, it, is it there for... Um, Creating like is is there racial inequality in this? Is there class inequality in this? Is it just the privileged few who get to be a part of this exciting progress? And how, if so, do we make this a part of the medical system? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and just as for COVID nineteen and other things, there are disparities that we are trying to address. And so we actually have started a nonprofit. Um, that is called APRP, Alzheimer's Prevention and Reversal Project. And so we've uh, sent, uh, basically we're raising funds and sending them to people who are in need, who are trying to get the appropriate tests and the appropriate treatment for either prevention or reversal of their own cognitive decline. So my hope is in the long run, what we'll see is that Blue Cross and Blue Shields of the world and Medicare and all these sorts of things will reimburse these and will recognize that, in fact, it's so critical to prevent the problem. It's so critical. You're going to be helping people so much more than to wait until things are late and then to do very few tests and then to give a drug that doesn't work very well. So you really want to get in. And there's, again, there's a tremendous amount that can be done. You know, we are, we're stuck in the, the early days this is like the pre-airline days where if you were going to try to go up in an airplane, uh, you were going to have to do it on your own dime or you were going to have to buy your own airplane or something like that. We're in those days now. Um, I hope there will be airlines coming along. I hope. <laughs> yeah. We actually had some discussion with Blue Cross Blue Shield. Uh, I, I think that as people realize, yes, this makes a lot of sense and can help so many people um, and can prevent, I mean, look at what it costs for people to go to nursing homes, just so much expense. And of course, it's not just the expense, they're in a horrible situation. Uh, and typically when they enter nursing homes, they go rapidly downhill because they're doing all the wrong things there. So we're also in some talks uh, with some assisted living facilities. And there's a wonderful one that's opened recently in San Diego called Marama, uh, Dr. Heather Sanderson. Uh, that's using this protocol. And the whole idea is to bring any people who need to come into the assisted living you know, then treat them and then get them back out of the assisted living. I mean, again, something that just hasn't happened before. So we look forward to these things as they're changing and people start taking a more modern 
view of the way to deal with prevention and reversal of cognitive decline. And that does include, just as you said, uh, reimbursement for everybody and to erase those disparities so that this is easily and readily available to all. Mm. And I just imagine the healthcare cost saving if every 45, 50-year-old got a cognoscopy. So we knew that in the next kind of 20 years what the potential clues were to allude to uh, cognitive decline and actually treated them in a preventative stage. Uh, And then, I mean, just the cost is mind-blowing. And for me, it is just so tragic that we are a crisis care management system versus a preventative care system. And yet in that crisis care system, we bitch and moan about the cost of healthcare on a government. (laughs) It just makes no sense. Yeah. So the average Alzheimer's patient costs about $350,000. There you go. uh, A huge, huge expense. And of course, 15% of the US population costing $300,000 a piece. Yeah, it's a huge cost. And so, you know, it's it's up a well over $260 billion just in the U.S. alone. So, yes, this is a huge problem uh, and one that, as you know, is growing. This is a, you know, globally, this is a trillion dollar healthcare problem. And so, you know, just as we had vaccine programs for things like polio and smallpox, we now need to initiate a vaccine program for Alzheimer's. But the difference is it's not your typical vaccine where you've got needles and you're injecting people. It's getting people on the right programs. And again, you could save huge amounts and of course, save their cognition, save their family. This this takes such a huge toll on families. I'm actually in the midst of reading something called the gene guillotine right now, which is by a family member uh, from a group that had uh, APP mutation. This is a very rare cause of Alzheimer's, but in the family, everyone who has the mutation is 100% penetrance. So everybody who has the mutation gets it. And just the, how difficult it has been to watch family member after family member and to have the, the scientists and the doctors telling them, you know, give up. There's just absolutely nothing for you. Um, this is really takes a toll on families. And uh, I, again, I, I look forward to the day when this is no longer a problem and when this is truly the rare disease that it should be. Yeah, so, so important. And uh, knowing several families who are affected by this right now in my circle, it's absolutely not just about the money. I, I just, I guess I speak about that aspect because the, the financial argument for continuing to treat Alzheimer's in the way that we do makes zero sense for an economy. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to come back to the Alzheimer's subtypes because we spoke about them in detail last time, but you've updated them to include glycotoxic, vascular, and traumatic. Can we look at each of those, um, who they affect, how they play out, what the clues are? Yeah. So good good point. So the bottom line is, as you indicated, that there are now six. We had originally had three. There are now six. So type one, inflammatory. And these are people with high HSCRP. You know, the typical person is someone in their 60s who's got a high HSCRP, may have pathogens associated with it, may have poor oral, dent, uh, you know, oral dentition, that sort of thing, um, may have P. gingivalis. Type two, atrophic. People with these are typically people, more often people in their 70s, low hormones, low nutrients, low trophic factors. So, in that case, it's not so much that you've got necessarily 
pathogens attacking you, you just don't have the infrastructure. You don't have the ability to support the over 500 trillion synapses that you normally have in your brain. And then, as you indicated, glycotoxic. So that's type 1.5. And we named it that because it literally has parts of type 1 and parts of type 2. So it has the inflammatory part, the type 1, because there is non-enzymatic glycation of proteins. Of course, we measure it as hemoglobin A1c, but there are hundreds of proteins that are glycated by this chronically high glucose. And so you get an inflammatory response there. These proteins are altered in their structure and function. And then secondly, it also has an atrophic component because you now have insulin resistance. So you're not responding. And insulin is an important trophic factor for neurons. So you're not responding appropriately. And some beautiful work uh, from Professor Getzel over at UCSF showing that you can look at neural exosomes and you can see specific serine and threonine phosphorylations of IRS1, which is downstream signaling from the insulin receptor. You can literally chemically measure the insulin resistance that virtually everybody with Alzheimer's has. So very common, and we see this all the time. People who've, you know, lots of, uh, lots of sugar over the years, lots of processed food over the years, uh, metabolic syndrome, very, very common. As you know, about 80 million Americans have metabolic syndrome, unbelievable. And that is a big risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And then type three is toxic. And we, the toxins, we see them in three different groups. So you have the metals, things like mercury, and then other inorganics. Of course, air pollution has emerged as a major contributor to cognitive decline. There's some nice work out of University of Southern California from Tuck Finch and, and others on that. Um, and then the second group is organics, things like benzene and toluene and formaldehyde. And of course, big one lately, glyphosate, things like that. These are, again, all these, these are drawing on your detox ability and genetics clearly play a role. Frequently, we see people who have nulls in various glutathione and detox related genes. Uh, for example, uh, uh, GPX or uh, GST, things like that. Um, and then the third group is, of course, the biotoxins. Uh, and uh, the biotoxins, typically we see these from mold species, um, things like trichothecenes and ochratoxin A and gliotoxins and things like this. And of course, it's not all molds, but the, the big five to worry about are the stachybotrys, penicillium, aspergillus, ketomium, and wallemia. Those are the big five. So great idea. If there's any question, check your house. And again, we're seeing these examples. People don't realize that they are exposed to these things until they get sick. And then in retrospect, they realize, oh, wait a minute, you know, other people in the family actually had lung problems, for example, and someone had chronic sinusitis and someone else had autism. And then the mother gets Alzheimer's. And in retrospect, they're all being exposed to this stuff, uh, or people get skin rashes or things like that. And so uh, one example recently was a woman who had probably, you know, according to her husband, she probably had 20 years of exposure. They knew there was mold. They never thought anything of it until she began to get very typical Alzheimer's, and it was a toxic type of Alzheimer's. And people who get type 3 or toxic Alzheimer's often look different than the others. They tend to be younger. We typically see it in the early 50s, and this is exactly what happened. This woman is more in the mid-50s, but again, early from what we think of as typical Alzheimer's, uh, which is you know starts typically in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Although, again, we used to think of this as a disease of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Now we know it's 20 years before that, so it's really a disease of the 40s, 50s, 60s that you don't get a diagnosis until 20 years later. Mm. 
In any case, she had, again, all the classic symptoms and had very high levels of mycotoxins in her urine. And, you know, after being told by a neurologist that there's nothing to do, in fact, with detox, she's turned the corner. Um, her family no is noticing, her husband's noticing, she's noticing, you know, she can do things she could not do before as she's improving. But it's not easy. As you know, uh, detoxification is a complicated process. Uh, you've got to stick with it. It doesn't happen overnight. You can't go too aggressively. That can actually hurt you. Uh, but you can't ignore it either. You've got to remove the source, which she did. And so when you do the right things, uh, things improve. So that's the type, type three. Um, and then type four, as you mentioned, vascular. And one of the things we're seeing a lot is people who have some degree of uh, vascular disease. And again, used to be thought that vascular and Alzheimer's were two different things. Now it's clear that they are very intimately related. Yes, you can have a vascular dementia without Alzheimer's, sure. And you can have Alzheimer's without vascular dementia. But frequently, there is a vascular component. And as has been shown by a group at uh, uh, Dr. Zlokovich and his group at USC repeatedly, um, this is one of the earliest changes in the Alzheimer's brain is that you see abnormalities of the vessels with an alteration in the blood-brain barrier. Uh, and again, something that you can attack, something that you can do something about. If you check it, if you know it's there, you can do something about it and get improvements. And then as you indicated, the last of the six types is traumatic. And again, Traumatic, we tend to associate with CTE, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy that was shown so beautifully uh, in the film Concussion. Uh, but in fact, again, this increases your risk for Alzheimer's disease. And really, the, you know, the concussion, you know, this CTE is a tauopathy. Really, the difference is, you know, you get head injury when you're young, you clear out the amyloid over time, and you end up with a tauopathy, so they call it CTE. Uh, but in fact, there was a beautiful study years ago showing that people who had car uh, significant car accidents, for example, and died within a few weeks of that, had massive amounts of increased amyloid in their brain. So again, it's a response to insults, including trauma, including hypoxia, including all these things that is a chronic activation. And again, you know, A-beta is part of your innate immune system. It is part of your response to these various pathogens and toxins. Mm. And so then I guess I'd love to ask what led you to decide to publish a, the program that you've been using in your own clinic uh, and clinical research for everyone to see. Was it because you kind of know it's going to take too long that way, way A, so you need to choose uh, to do something differently to help people get access to this information in a practical sense? Yeah, you know, and, and this is an ongoing discussion, an ongoing controversy, and we've had so much criticism and so much pushback and, and people writing all these nasty things about, you know, what we're doing. Interestingly, no one's ever asked to see any of the patients. No one has ever said, hey, uh, why don't you write your side of the story and we'll write you know, ours. We, we'd like to get both sides to see what you're thinking. No one's ever said that. So the idea here is, look, if you're if people are trying to develop jet planes when there's no way to fly at all, um, it, it might take a long time to get a jet plane built. It might to figure it out the idea to get the technology. So look, you know, you may start with a simple biplane, and even a few seconds off the ground is something. So people, you know, writing criticism, it's kind of like saying, okay, you know, Wilbur and Orville, right, didn't stay up long enough. Well, hey, 
you know, it, it's at least getting the plane off the ground. You have to start somewhere. And as they say in behavioral st- uh, therapy, hey, do micro steps. Um, Ariana Huffington was just saying the other day, you know, if you're drinking seven sodas a day, don't, you don't have to go to zero overnight. Go to six and a half sodas for a few days, then go to six and ultimately get off sodas, just like you'd be getting off cigarette smoking and things like that. So take the micro steps that get you there. And the same thing is true for developing a new approach. We didn't publish anything. We started, so ironically, we started way back in 2011, interestingly, with a study in Australia. And what we proposed was, based on the, you know, at that time, about 25 years of research, we could see that what was driving this process in the lab is this synaptoblastic synaptoclastic ratio. And people hadn't gone after that before or even talked about it. And so we thought, okay, let's design the first clinical trial that addresses all of these different things, and including a drug, by the way, a drug available in Australia, but not in the US, which is why we wanted to do these studies in Australia. And so we had it set up so that there were four groups, of course, placebo control, the drug, and then drug plus placebo, and then drug plus the whole uh, you know, the, the whole um, nine yards. So the idea was have a comprehensive program that addresses these various things. And so then doing this, the IRBs in Australia said, no, we will not allow you to do this because it is a multivariable study. You're asking to change more than one thing. Well, unfortunately, that's the disease. Just as they say, you know, the virus will decide when we can reopen. COVID-19 tells us what to do. We don't tell COVID-19 what to do, right? And we don't tell SARS-CoV-2 what to do. It, the same thing is true with Alzheimer's. Yeah, we don't tell Alzheimer's what to do. Alzheimer's tells us. So we have to respond to the biology, the biochemistry, the genetics of the disease Alzheimer's. And in so doing, we realized that to translate the the results we had in the laboratory, we were going to have to address these things. So I was actually sitting in my office back in 2011 and thinking, okay, if we're going to test this drug, we know the drug is going to have a small impact. We know what the drug does. But what, how are we going to address these other things? And I thought, okay, well, maybe we should add like brain training. And then I thought, well, maybe we should be thinking about correcting hormone deficiencies. And of course, then the light bulb went off. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Why would you withhold anything? If someone is out of balance on this, and this is a terminal illness, wouldn't you want to address all the things that are driving the illness? Now, of course, some people just don't believe that these are the things that are driving the illness. But one of the most important things about translation of research is that it has to be internally consistent. In other words, when I tell you this is how I think it works and this is how, why I think I can make people better, it has to fit with what the epidemiologists tell us, what the pathologists tell us, what the geneticists tell us, you know, on and on and on. And of course, now even the GI doctors and the leaky gut, all this, it has to fit. There has to be internal consistency. These people who said, you know, oh, it's just all about reactive oxygen species. Well, wait a minute. There's a hundred other theories. No, it's just all about herpes simplex. No, it's just all about HHV. No, it's all about P. gingivalis. These are very naive ideas where you're saying it's all about blank. We already know from the over 50,000 published papers, it's not all about any one blank. Now, you know, will we discover someday that maybe there's only, if everything has one thing, it's just one thing? Maybe. But so far, all of the data point to the fact 
that this is a pathology that can be accessed and can be driven by different pathogens. For example, lots of nice data on herpes simplex 1. Professor Ruth Itzaki has spent her entire life studying this, showing that absolutely when you have repeated outbreaks, for example, when you have exposure, when you look in the brains, this increases your risk. But does that cause every single case of Alzheimer's? Of course not. Lots of nice work now on P. gingivalis from your dentition. And this is, again, people with poor dentition. That's an important thing to look at. We recommend that people get uh, one of the tests like oral DNA. Look and see where you stand. And again, there are ways to address it, like dental side and toothpaste and mouthwash. So all these things that people said, well, that's not a cure for Alzheimer's. No, not by itself. But addressing the causes of the decline, you know, this is the basis of 21st century medicine, which is no longer about what it is, like a pneumococcal pneumonia, but about why it is. Increasing data set size and looking at the change in physiology. And the irony is these sorts of complex algorithms and far beyond these are already being used by Google to figure out where you shop. And so why would we be using these things? Don't we care about... <laughs> poor cognition as much as we care about where people shop. You know, this is the future of medicine, larger, uh, you know, larger data sets and computer-based algorithms to enhance what any practitioner, MD, etc., cetera, uh, is going to be able to do. This should be in routine use. And even the relatively minor changes that we've made, we look now at 150 different variables. But you know, in the not too distant future, it will be millions. Uh, so we're looking at all these different things like your, you know, inflammatory status and all of your organic toxins and your various biotoxins and whether you have specific molds growing in your home and whether you have vascular compromise and whether you're getting enough oxygenation while you sleep and on and on. This now gives us a, a pretty nice picture of what's driving the cognitive decline. And of course, again, if you're able to detox, are you in a poor state genetically to be able to detox? This gives us a much more complete view for each person of why there is either cognitive decline or risk for cognitive decline. And we had a great example just a few days ago, a woman who wrote me who said, you know, lots in my, my family, uh, people dying in their 50s. I'm now in my 50s. I'm asymptomatic so far, but now here's my cognoscopy, and you can see very clearly why she is at risk, specific factors that are classic for driving Alzheimer's. So she's great now. She might not have been great 10 years from now, and the hope is that now we'll be able to keep her in great cognition for decades to come. The reality is you know, everyone should have good cognition for their entire lives. Mm, yeah, it's. Uh, I heard a, a professor say on a podcast years ago, people talk about uh, cognition issues and say, oh, you know, I'm just getting older. It is not normal to not remember where you put things in your 70s. And that was such a light bulb moment because it was a real reflection on how we have normalised cognitive decline as a society. And uh, when we normalise something, we kind of expect it to happen and we're not shocked when it does. And therein lies the problem. And how many times have you heard, you know, this woman is 85 and she's sharp as a tack. It's amazing. Well, in fact, yes, it's great for her, but everybody should be that way. Yeah. It's just like a, a, a comparison to that exact example on a completely different subject is 
uh, when my son was a toddler, my favourite snack to roll around with, you know, go to the park, go to the zoo, was carrots. I would just take a couple of organic carrots. It would take him forever to gnaw through those things. And, uh, and he loved them. And every time we sat on a bench without fail, oh, my gosh, what a good boy eating a carrot. Like <laughs> it was a super strange thing. And yet no one would blink an eyelid at like a little toddler eating a packet of cheesy puffs and drinking some strawberry milk. Um, we what we have normalized is to our demise. Yes, that's a really good point because again, we're making that next step where years ago and in the twentieth century, um, we wouldn't we didn't even recognize you know for example pre diabetes wasn't a common thing. You either had diabetes, you didn't have diabetes, and it wasn't a big deal to walk around with a you know with a fasting insulin uh, of fifteen, twenty, twenty five. Because okay, your you know your your body's just handling this, so people didn't even usually check. In fact, even today, many people aren't checking fasting insulins when that's such an important thing. So again, there were all these procedures, uh, things like you know in the early 1900s, people would have radiation as that was thought to be good. Well, again, if if it's a hormetic effect, you might with minimal effects, you actually do get some of this nice hormetic effect. But of course, people overdid it. And, and ended up killing themselves, unfortunately. And we then recognize, okay, wait a minute, this is not a good thing to do. We're in the same sort of situation now where all these things that we do are not good for us. We don't know it until we get a chronic illness. So now we need to look earlier. We need to look at people who have hemoglobin A1Cs of 5.6 or 5.7, who have fasting insulins of you know 15 instead of 5. Um, who have HSCRPs of 1.1 instead of 0.3. I mean, on and on. These are things where, yeah, they're, these are you're, you're having silent killers. Just again, just like what happened when people were looking at blood pressures and said, oh my gosh, all these people who have high blood pressures don't live as long as the ones who have normal blood pressures. Hey, this must be something important. We're in the same sort of scenario that there was, you know, uh, many, many years ago with all these other markers. And we're seeing the same thing with cognition. If you are walking around with a C4A of 15,000, you may not think you're in trouble, but you, you, you are in trouble. If you're walking around with you know, major exposure to these mycotoxins, good to know it earlier rather than waiting until you've got cognitive decline or other chronic problems. So you mentioned C4A there. Um, we can't get that test in Australia. We have to send our blood off in a very expensive courier all the way to the States and back, and it costs $1,500. And as someone who's trying to recover from mycotoxin poisoning myself, um, I was exposed for eight years. And uh, and exactly as you say, you know, I was uh, having definite mild cognitive decline. I would look at an object and I would say, can you pass me the, and I just couldn't think of the thing, but it was the salt, you know, really, really simple stuff. And I would slur. And the minute we left that apartment, just two weeks out and we took nothing porous and we cleaned everything else, uh, I stopped shaking uh, and tremoring. I spoke clearly again. I didn't find it tricky to find my words. Uh, I could write long form again, whereas writing a paragraph I would struggle with. And that is not normal for a 40-year-old woman. And yet 
we don't know how to help that 40-year-old woman right now in the traditional sense. Yeah, and you don't have to necessarily get C4A. Um, you can certainly, uh, people get things like TGF-beta-1, if that's available, MMP-9. Uh, C4A is a good one because it is responds pretty much in real time, as Dr. Shoemaker had point, pointed out years ago. Uh, so you're, you're measuring slightly different things. But again, with the overall things. Now, did you have any depression at the time or not? I had anxiety. And I am not an anxious person by nature. I am very chill. But I remember this one time my husband coming around the corner of our apartment. It wasn't even a huge house where you wouldn't expect to run into a family member. It's just coming around the corner into the bedrooms. And I jumped up in the air like, I, like a burglar was invading my home. And uh, I had heart palpitations for five hours after that event. And a similar situation where my sister played a trick on me at Christmas, the year I was really sick. She said, oh, my God, it's a snake. And I, again, jumped up, heart racing, and did not sleep until 8 a.m. the next morning. Yeah. yeah how highly strung, uh, high alert my nervous system was. And, uh, and it, it gives me great satisfaction in, in sounding the mold alarm to people because so many homes are water damaged. We just spent six weeks looking for a non-water damaged property uh, as we prepare to move. Uh, we looked at over 50 places before we found one. Yeah, and, and one of the people that came in early years ago, you know, moved from a house with an ERMI score of six and a half and then actually left that house, bought a new house, but that turned out to have an ERMI score of seven. They just didn't bother to check and said, oh, it's a newer house, it should be fine. And, and then had to move out of that one and then ended up moving into essentially a motorhome that was clean and clearly improved with being in the right place. Yeah, one of the big problems is that people will just say, oh, we don't believe in this. We just don't believe that this can be a problem. And that really, you know, I think that really hurts everybody because there are just so many examples now again and again and again that to deny this. Uh, just because it hasn't been recognized previously or because financial reasons or because of insurance reasons, you know, this is really hurting people. I mean, this gets to the point, and we're, we're facing the same thing with the Alzheimer's studies. It really gets to the point of criminal negligence. You're denying something that has been repeatedly published in peer-reviewed journals, and it is resulting in poor health for people who could otherwise be helped. That's really unfortunate. So when a doctor finishes their degree and, uh, you know, says they're going to first do no harm, how are we here then? How are we here? Well, yeah, that's, it's, it's a great point. And, in fact, I, I talked to uh, the vice chancellor of a major medical centre who is very interested in education. That's been his big claim to fame over the years. And, um, and he read the book that I wrote and said, you know, we'd like to train our physicians with these sorts of approaches, but we can't do that until all physicians accept it. And of course, all physicians won't accept it until we train our physicians that way. So it's really, unfortunately, another example of 
you know, tradition and permission in the, uh, in the medical establishment. And it's, of course, there's a long history of this. You know, this happened with the studies of scurvy. This, is, this happened with the studies uh, by Semmelweis uh, that were rejected early, all the Pasteur and all of the Enlister and all the germ theory work. And, and, and of course, uh, uh, you know, with all of the work on uh, toxins, uh, as as an important cause of illness. At each of these steps, the establishment says, we don't recognize that. And it takes years to come around. And unfortunately, a lot of people are harmed during those years. So I look forward to the time that we will be teaching all of our medical students that. In fact, the, the doctors who are out in practice have been very interested. As I mentioned, we have you know, 1,500 that have already taken the training. We have another over 500 who are cur- currently on the waiting list for this next training. So we have another one that'll be out in August and uh, with Recode 2.0. Is there a list published somewhere for people to find the best doctor local to them? Yeah, actually, if you go, um, you can look at mycognoscopy.com. Mm-hmm. Great. Fantastic. And you can sign up that way, yeah. So, yeah, the, the idea is to get more people. And as you know, the Institute for Functional Medicine has done a great job with training many physicians in root cause medicine. And I think you know that is the 21st century medicine. We talk a lot about precision medicine, attacking the things that are driving a cancer, for example. And this is precision medicine. We're attacking the root cause of the underlying problem instead of just giving it a diagnosis like Alzheimer's disease and then saying there's nothing you can do. I always tell people when you say the term Alzheimer's, you should never follow it with a period. It shouldn't be Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's due to what? Mm, that is such a great uh, aha for people to hone in on there. Due to what? Time to play detective. So let's talk about the book. Uh, Everyone's going to want to know, what does the diet plan look like? Uh, You've obviously developed a food pyramid, but it doesn't look like a traditional food pyramid. This one is geared to uh, start helping the brain feel safe, right? So talk to us about that. Yeah, so um, when I published the first book, uh, The End of Alzheimer's, back in 2017, uh, one of the most common things that came up was people said, we'd like more detail. Okay, so you're telling us that this is now, you can translate the research, that was the idea, to say, you know, here's what synaptoblastic and synaptoclastic is all about, here's why you can actually do something about it for the first time, and lots of cases studies and examples and things like that, and by the way, we published 100 uh, patients with uh, documented improvement in 2018. So uh, we wanted to get more uh, detail that people had asked for. Well, they really wanted a handbook, essentially, um, how to do this. Now, at the time, I also wanted to have something which I called the first survivors, have people who, ta- who wrote about their own stories, because I think that's so compelling. And so we had a number of people write their own stories, and then it turned out that the publisher, Random House, wanted to separate those two. So the first survivors will actually be out next year, but but what will come out August 18th um, is the handbook. It's, it's called the uh, it's their name, the End of Alzheimer's Program. So it's a program, and I didn't like that name when they first said it because it sounds like it's the end of the program. <laughs> but in any case, that that's that's their their uh, idea. And okay, this is going to be the end of Alzheimer's program. So now we're going to go back and fill in all the blanks. Here's here's how you do this. Here's where you call. And so one of the things we did that I was really enthusiastic about 
was to interact with two people who are have very, very complementary skill sets. Julie G is the one who is APOE44. She founded uh, the website APOE4.info that so many people use all over the world and share information. And the vast majority of those people are on some version um, of this protocol that we developed. And so Julie actually, uh, who's, who's doing this every day and who's, uh, so she's got such great experience. She went from 35th percentile to 98th percentile, just testing beautifully, um, doing extremely well. And interestingly, she did have some undiagnosed and unknown patho pathological ongoing um, after she was improving, there was still something that clearly wasn't right, and I urged her to get additional tests. And it took it took me a while to get her to do that, but she finally turn, did turn out to turn up something that hadn't been seen before, and it's really helped for her to continue to go up and up and up. So she's not only improved, but she's sustained, and she's now uh, been treating mostly mostly treating herself, but with the help of a number of physicians over the years for eight years so she and she's doing absolutely great and sustaining her improvements so she actually wrote what she's doing and her workarounds and the things that she's doing which was fantastic um, as, so as a uh, you know as a very successful user and biohacker um, and founder of the website and then the third person is uh, my wife um, dr. Aida Lachine Bredesen and so she's a tremendous clinician and integrative physician uh, and actually taught me more than anybody else about integrative medicine. Uh, again, I, you know, as a scientist, I used to just not believe in this stuff. You know, come on, you know, don't tell me that that things like meditation have anything. Don't tell me about gut health. You know, we're going to get one drug that hits one molecule in your brain, one fold of one protein, and that's going to cure it. And it took a while of research. I was kind of slow to to realize finally. That is not right. I, you know, I should have listened to my wife 20 years ago when she was telling me this. So, um, so the three of us wrote the handbook part of this new book, and I'm really excited about that because I think it gives people much more of a hands-on approach than any one person could give them alone. And I'm not aware of other books where you have that sort of combination of user, scientist, clinician, all writing a handbook about improving cognition. So I'm, I'm enthusiastic about that. And, yet it uh, makes and the, the, you asked about the diet. What's that? And yet it makes so much sense to have those complementary uh, skills and points of view. Yes. And, you know, when it comes to where's the best place to shop and what's the best food and what's the specific, uh, you know, locale to buy this. You know, as a scientist, I wouldn't know that. That's not my area of expertise. I can focus on the mechanisms. I can focus on saying, here's where we want your biochemistry to be. And we want to use whatever it takes to get your biochemistry there. Well, Julie can say, okay, when you go to get you know, this type of fish, or when you go to get this type of beet, or when you, she's got a very nice section on um, cacao and cocoa nibs, and which ones have too much cadmium, and which ones don't have too much cadmium. And so there are these very practical day-to-day -day things 
um, that she can add that very few people know about and specific workarounds. Okay, if this isn't working for you, what's the thing to do next? The good news is you don't have to do everything perfectly. We usually tell patients, you know, there's a, imagine a roof with 36 holes in it because when we first looked at mechanisms, we identified 36 different mechanisms that all contribute to this. So we want to close all of those holes. Now, a drug is a great close, a great uh, way to patch one hole, but uh, hey, you've got a lot more there. And so um, she's fantastic about you know, helping to close these. And once you close a certain number, there's a threshold, the others will literally snap shut. And this is exactly what Dr. Dean Ornish showed with vascular disease 35 years ago, that once he could get people over the hump, they start doing the right things, they didn't have to be perfect. And instead of putting down plaque in their coronary arteries, guess what? They're actually picking up the plaque. These are dynamic systems. And the same thing is true for the synaptoblastic and synaptoclastic signaling. Once you get people in the right mode, you get all the things optimized. You know, once you get there, now you're starting to be able to make and keep memories instead of just continuing to downsize. And on the other hand, long as you're doing the wrong things, you're going to be downsizing. Mm, and so... It comes back to what you were saying right at the beginning about Alzheimer's being essentially a protective fight of the brain. We almost want to get people to the point where they're not being signaled to fight and protect anymore. They can relax and grow. And that's when the body's healing takes over itself. Is that right? That's exactly right. And so you can imagine there's, there's a role for things like stem cells and there's a role for trophic factors and there's a role for estradiol and testosterone and vitamin D and BDNF and NGF, all these things that are helping to support that. But as long as you've got so many things going wrong, as long as you've got a brain trying to protect itself, it doesn't make sense to try to reduce that. And in fact, again, talk about everything being backward. The drug companies trying to say, let's remove your amyloid and see if that helps you. Well, again, this is a misguided idea. Let's remove the problem first, then remove the amyloid. I actually think that the anti-amyloid approaches are going to turn out to be very helpful after you've removed all the things that are causing you to make the amyloid. Now you want to rebuild. And of course, you want to clear out the amyloid that has accumulated over the years. But your brain is a little bit like, you know, if you put soldiers uh, in, a, in a fort in, you know, Iraq, if things now get better, you're not going to rush them all home immediately. You're going to leave them there and say, well, you know, there could be problems in the future. Let's keep a garrison there just in case. Um, and that's basically what your brain is doing. They keep these lakes of amyloid sitting there for years that are at the ready. Now, the fortunately, these things are not terribly damaging as long as they don't oligomerize. But when things, again, you get exposed to a problem and you see this all the time, people be doing better and then suddenly they have a viral illness or as you well know, re-exposure to mycotoxins. And have you ever had a re-exposure? Oh, yes. Yeah, I've had a couple. And what happens? Uh, you just like downhill so fast. Yeah. And that's the same thing that when we're seeing people improve with Alzheimer's, um, they can have a kidney stone or they can have a viral illness or they can simply stop the program and things will go backwards until you then re-optimize things. 
So I, you know, again, I think these are these things make sense. There is internal consistency. It fits with what we see clinically, biochemically, genetically, pathologically. You know, on and on. It's not just grabbing at one straw and saying, "Oh yeah, this is." It's just about reactive oxygen species. You know, that's not that's just not the way this disease works. Hmm. And so, can you tell us a little bit about the brain food pyramid? Sure. Yeah. So if you look at the classic food pyramid, it's actually one that's not particularly nice to your brain. So as you know, there are things like grains, you know, bread and pasta and things like this that are, you know, at the bottom of the pyramid, you have all these, uh, you know, you have all these carbs that actually turn out to be quite bad for you. Um, And on the other hand, you've got things like oils, fats that are quite good for your brain that are supposed to be used rarely. And so, unfortunately, what's best for your cognition turns out essentially to take the original brain food pyramid and flip it upside down. If you look at what actually makes your brain work well, and again, there are lots of studies on this now, things like the Mediterranean diet and the mind diet and ketogenic diets, what, if you, again, you, you curate from all of these, what works the best, and we see it again and again and again with good results, is what we've called Ketoflex 12-3. So that means we want a mostly plant-based, so this is a plant-rich, all sorts of things you know, that, are, that are helpful there, like the polyphenols and just on and on, the, the greens, the, 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 you know, the, the B vitamins, the on and on. These things are so helpful. And then mildly ketogenic, you do best, you know, part of the, a part of Alzheimer's is an energy failure. And that's been clear for years and years. If you look, even people who are at risk, for example, with APOE4, you can look at their uh, FDG PET scans and see reduced glucose utilization in the temporal and parietal regions into their 20s. So you are not getting the appropriate use and support. And as Dr. Stephen Kinane pointed out years ago, you can bridge that gap with ketones. So you can generate, in the long run, you'd like to have endogenous ketosis, which means a low, simple carb and high, good fats, you know, monounsaturates, polyunsaturates. But again, we take it in phases. And that's another thing that people have completely gotten wrong. You know, why would it be that one drug in one day just going to do this for the rest of your life? You know, you know, isn't it possible that you want to start with something and then you may have to change over time? You know, of course. So at the beginning, we want to fix that gap. And that may take taking some MCT oil or taking some exogenous ketones or coconut oil, things like that. If you stay on those oils, you may increase your LDL particle number. Okay, so you then have to re-optimize, and you can use a combination of polyunsaturates, monounsaturates, and some saturated fat if you need it, so that you get the best of both worlds. You don't have the high LDL particle number, but you've got good cognition. One way to go if you're APOE4 is simply to use things like exogenous ketones. Um, you know, things like, um, there's a thing, a thing I called KE1, another one called KE4. These are esters and, and, uh, and in some salts or combinations of those um, that I like. Um, but, you know, I have, you know, I don't consult for any of these companies, um, but, uh, but others like other ones. Uh, the bottom line is, again, it's not about what you use. It's about driving your biochemistry to an optimal place where you are supporting 
synaptogenesis, and maintenance. So you want to start by doing so. Ketoflex 12.3 means get yourself into mild ketosis, 1.0 to 4.0 millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate. People don't like sticking their fingers. Again, better than going into a nursing home. Um, uh, we're looking at a breathalyzer right now that I hope will be just as good, which would be great. Uh, don't know yet, but that's the first thing. And then flex, flexitarian. So yeah, you want to have meat, fish, great. You don't want to have it, that's okay too. If you're going to have fish, you know, make it the, the right kind of fish. Uh, if you're going to have, uh, you know, make it a wild caught fish, smash fish, best as you know. Um, you know, salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, herring. Stay away from the high mercury fish like shark and, and tuna and things like that. Uh, and then 12-3, so KetoFlex 12-3, tw a minimum of 12 hours between finishing dinner, starting breakfast or brunch or lunch, and then three minimum of three hours before bedtime. And so this is a, uh, it, it's, it ends up being around 70% um, good fats and around 10 to 15% uh, of carbs, again, uh, complex carbs, um, minimizing simple carbs, and then a, a moderate amount of uh, protein, somewhere around 15%, or close to, uh, you know, a, a gram per kilogram, 0.8 to one gram per kilogram. Again, this is a ballpark. You can follow yourself. Uh, one of the things I've been doing during COVID-19 is is checking myself on, on chronometer, which I find you know, easy, helpful, uh, so you can look at the various nutrients and where you stand. Uh, so that is the beginning. And again, that's not the cure for Alzheimer's. That is the beginning of improving your cognition. Exercise, sleep. Sleep is one of the most underappreciated things. And again, decreasing oxygen saturation while you're sleeping is one of the most underdiagnosed problems that contribute to cognitive decline. Oral health, another underdiagnosed problem contributing to cognitive decline. Stress levels. Some of the people we have literally do very well unless they're under stress. When they're under stress, they fall apart. Their cognition is very poor. Um, when they're you know, out of stress, they do very, very well. And then brain training and then optimizing your hormones and all of these things, absolutely critical. And they are included in the new book that you mentioned. Brilliant. Uh, and and so just to um, clarify one thing on the dietary aspect, there are obviously different people, different strokes for different folks. Uh, is there any way for someone to, um, to recognise what parts of that program are going to work best for them and what parts they maybe need to tweak? Yeah, I think the the main thing is to look again, looking at the actual outcome. So, uh, in a, you know, in a perfect world, you'd just be able to follow your CNS vital signs or your you know whatever you're going to use, your MOCA score, your COG state, what have you. Um, one of the things that's very telling is when people are doing things like Brain HQ, which is brain training, and they're seeing their scores consistently go up, 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 and doing better and better and better. That's a good sign. But you're right; that's removed from the from the biochemistry itself. So one thing we found repeatedly is that people who are not getting into some degree of ketosis that are down at 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, do not do as well as people who are in the 1.0 to 4.0 range. We see it again and again and again. And then, of course, looking at your insulin sensitivity. We'd like to make it that you know you your hemoglobin A1C is where it should be. You know you're at 5.0 or upper fours or lower fives, and that your fasting insulin is down around four or five, 
and that your fasting glucose is down below 90. Uh, one of the things, again, that's been so helpful that we didn't know about a few years ago was the importance of continuous glucose monitoring, CGM. Um, and this has been very helpful. And there are a number of products out there that can do CGM. And not only are we finding people saying, oh my gosh, when I ate what I thought was a good thing, like granola, it just spiked my sugar dramatically. Uh, but we're also seeing something that may be even worse. People say, oh my gosh, I was waking up at 2 or 3 a.m. And it turned out it was because my glucose was 45. I didn't know it until I checked. And of course, this is very damaging for your brain to be walking around with these low. So now you have you know, little in the way of ketones, little in the way of glucose, really tough. So optimizing these and getting to what is metabolic flexibility, where you can now burn the ketones and the fats, but you can also burn the glucose when called upon to do so. That is what is working best for people. Now, as you said, as far as tweaking, a lot of it is you can start with, well, okay, what do I like? Do I want to do more of a vegan, uh, a vegetarian, uh, more of a, uh, an omnivore diet? Of course, there are groups out there that are t today that are saying it's better to just do 100% meat. And you know, in the area of, and of course, there hasn't been anything published showing that that is the way to reverse cognitive decline. But um, for people who have autoimmune problems and gut health problems, for some of them, it seems to work quite well. So we're agnostic. Whatever works to help people is the way to go. Um, I hope that if there's an interest in a pure, in an all meat diet for people with cognitive decline, please publish publish some uh, data showing or publish some anecdotes showing people uh, improve. For you know, for clinical trials, we're in the midst now of the first one. We finally, after being turned down, as I mentioned earlier, in Australia, in back in 2011 and 12, we were turned down in the U.S. in 2018. Finally, in 2019, we were allowed to start the first trial where instead of predetermining a treatment, this will be the first trial where now you're actually looking at all the contributors for each person. And typically we find, you know, over 10, you know, they have, uh, they have specific pathogens, they have toxin exposure and so forth and so on. And so addressing those things to improve in a personalized precision medicine type of way. So I'm very excited about that trial. And we're carrying out that with three fantastic integrative physicians, uh, Dr. Ann Hathaway, Dr. Kat Toops, and Dr. Deborah Gordon. So I'm very enthusiastic. And that'll be finished at the end of this year and should be published next year. Oh, that's fantastic. And uh, so we didn't talk about it much today, but I definitely want to just uh, ask you one question around this because obviously the implication of the health of the microbiome is huge in our overall health. And just at listening to the keto flex diet that you spoke about is there a mention of resistant starch and the benefit of prebiotic foods to keep uh yep you're smiling so i absolutely. think <laughs> yeah absolutely we have a discussion on resistant starches and again having someone who's doing this every day is is really targets us to the things that have worked and the things that have not worked and you and so absolutely resistant starches very important um, and you mentioned the microbiome, and absolutely, this is turning out, as they say, you know, you can look at your microbiome, and as, as you know, Dr. Knight, who's done so much excellent work on this, has said, 
it's not easy to translate your microbiome today into, ah, this tells me here's my optimal life plan. You know, that's where things are headed. It's going to be a while. But there's a lot you can tell from it, a lot you can see about, okay, do I have leaky gut? Do I, do I have an IBD sort of profile? And as you probably know, there are profiles that are more associated with Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, in animal models of Alzheimer's, changing that profile and improving it actually does improve the cognition. Uh, on the other hand, making it worse makes the amyloid deposition worse. Again, because you know, you're know you laying down this amyloid as a protective response, leaky gut is not a good thing to have. And as Professor Fasano has pointed out, leaky gut is often associated with leaky blood-brain barrier. So again, this is a systemic problem that you're getting a brain diagnosis for, but it is really a systemic problem. And micro, oral microbiome, as I mentioned, sinus microbiome, critical. Um, we'll see how important the skin microbiome is over time. Gut microbiome, you know, very important. And of course, nice studies done looking at the, micro, the gut microbiome in Parkinson's disease models, very compelling. So I think it's pretty clear um, and, and then, by the way, this fits very nicely with the, uh, with the Brock and Brock staging. It's the idea that, hey, if you look at the beginnings, uh, Parkinson's, for example, looks like something that is literally coming from the gut through the vagus nerve and into the brainstem and then moving out from there. So again, all these things have to be internally consistent. You can't have something where you just say, well, it's just this one thing. And then, you know, 90% of the data say, hey, it doesn't explain that. Whatever your model is has to get people better and it has to be compatible with what we know from the different areas and the different fields of endeavor in research on Alzheimer's disease. So such a wealth of information, Dale. Thank you so much. <laughs> this has Thank been you so much for having me on, Alex. Incredible chat. We've gone way over time, and I'm very thankful for the time you've given us today. My last question: If people could do one thing in this coming week to improve their cognitive health, what would you like to tell the listeners to do? Yeah, you know, I always get asked that question. What one thing to do? I'm sorry and to be entire, cliche. <laughs> the entire basis of this is that it's not about one thing. Yeah, I know, uh, I know. <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's kind of like um, taking someone who who spends their life uh, as a race car driver and saying, uh, you know, uh, what's the best place to walk or something like that's not what we do. Um, so the one thing alone. So, but let me say two things about that one thing. First of all, when people ask me what's the one thing, I always say get tested because the thing that really empowers you is to know where you stand. And this is true. This is a disease that is silent for so long. It creeps up on you. And if you are forewarned, you are forearmed, literally, you can look and see the things. If you know, If you've got insulin resistance, good to know it. If you've got specific toxins you're exposed to, good to know it. If you've got uh, you know, oxygen saturation problems at night, so common, you are saving your life by knowing and addressing these things. But you know, if you then say, well, okay, well, what is you know, perhaps the most important thing um, of all the different things? And again, it's like an orchestra. So it's kind of like saying, if you can give me one, uh, one instrument, instrument, make yeah. the orchestra. <laughs> you know, is it the violins? You know, is it the timpani? You know? It's the timpani. I was the timpani player at school. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Okay. Then for you, that was the most important thing. 
but then, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, then it would probably be getting a uh, a diet that that gives you uh, a it gives you so many good things that gives you a level of ketosis. No question that helps for cognitive decline and in prevention as well as reversal. That gives you uh, appropriate fiber. I think fiber is one of the most underappreciated parts of our diet. Incredibly important. As Paul Clayton, from a uh, professor from Oxford, uh, just noted the other day, we are probably producing an order of magnitude less butyrate than people, our, our predecessors, produced because of all the processed and lousy foods we're eating and the things that we're not doing right. Uh, very, you know, very good point. Uh, it gives you appropriate microbiome. It gives you appropriate healing so that you don't have a leaky gut. It gives you insulin sensitivity. Just getting rid of metabolic syndrome may be the number one metabolic thing you can do for your health. Although, again, I have to say, I've been shocked to see how important toxins are in contributions to cognitive decline and how reticent practitioners are to recognize that problem, even though it comes up again and again, and you have firsthand experience with you know seeing what it feels like, and and, and I'm sure being told by doctors, no, it's all in your head and all this sort of stuff, and you know, uh, I I can't help you with this, etc. So I would say if you had to take one thing, it would be a really optimized diet. But don't criticize me if that doesn't reverse your cognitive decline, because the whole basis of this is looking at all the different things. So please, I would encourage everyone please get tested. Don't let cognitive decline sneak up on you. And if you do see signs of decline, please don't write it off to a senior moment. Please get checked out before it's too late because there's so much you can do about it today. Mm, brilliant wise words to finish. Thank you, Dale. And we shall no doubt hear from you again in another 18 months time with more incredible resources that you continue to provide the community. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart S T U A R T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lotoxlife.com. And if you want additional support, and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low-Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.